0: It really, really is good Amen. to see you guys today. It really is good. And I apologize for the fact that you have to see me every week. And I don't get to see you, but it's really great to be here today with you, to see you guys. And when we started the week off this week, I thought I was going to bring a certain message, but as the week's gone on, I felt uh, impressed by the Lord to kind of shift gears here a little bit and talk about, something else. I just feel impressed to talk about the presence of God here for you. If you've been around New Life for a long time, you know that I'm something of a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you remember that or not. Um, uh, and, and for those of you who have read, I'm sure there's nobody here who hasn't read them yet, but if you haven't, uh, this, it's a series of children's books Uh, that are allegorical of the gospel and of the scriptures. And in the the stories, there's a a lion named Aslan. And Aslan represents Jesus Christ. And in fact, Lewis does a phenomenal job of of coloring Aslan and making him uh, like Jesus. He is mysterious. He is powerful. He is, at the same time, he's compassionate. He's tender. Uh, As you're reading the books, you just want him to show up because it's just the best thing when Aslan is there. And you just kind of are attracted to him. And in fact, one little boy one time wrote uh, Lewis a letter, and he was very disturbed and upset, and he said in his letter, I fear that I love Aslan more than I love Jesus. And Lewis wrote back wisely and said, oh, no. Everything you love in Aslan is Jesus. Jesus. And so in the stories, there's one story, uh, one book called The Magician's Nephew. I reread it this week. And, And in this book, two children, Diggory and Polly, they show up in Narnia just as Narnia is being created. And Narnia is created by Aslan walking along and he's singing. And wherever the song of Aslan goes, things come alive. I mean, wherever his song goes, if it's a deep note in the song, the deeps of the oceans are created. If it's a high note of mountains jut out, and it's a beautiful thing, and the kids are delighted. And you might think, well, that, that's not how creation happened. It was just God speaking, and it was created. But, but you know, in, in Job 38, uh, God is speaking, and he says this, "'Were you there, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation?' While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So there was singing in creation. And Aslan is singing. As he's singing, everything is coming alive and the children are delighted in it. But there's somebody else that they have brought in and her name is Jadis. And she's wicked. She's she's the evil white witch and she's there and she's very angry at Aslan. And she hears only growlings and roaring. She can't hear the beauty of the music. And when she had come into the world, she brought with her, she broke off part of a lamppost, and she takes it and she throws it at Aslan. It hits him in the eye and bounces right off like he doesn't even feel it. But, at, but Narnia is so alive, so creative at that moment, that where the lamppost lands, it grows up a full lamppost. And Diggory, whose mother back in our world is suffering and dying, she's hours from death, he knows If I can just get an apple or or a piece of fruit or or something from this world and go back, she'll be healed, she'll be alive, because everything comes alive in Narnia. So he goes to Aslan, and he begs them, please let me take something back from my mom that will cure her. And here's what Lewis writes. Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything else in this whole world, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment, he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself he looked Aslan in the face and he saw tears and he realized, Aslan cares about my mom more than I do. And he asked Aslan for a piece of fruit and Aslan said, you brought evil into Narnia, you gotta take care of that first. And so he sends him on a mission to get an apple from another orchard and bring it back and they're gonna plant it right there where Jadis was. And he equips him for the mission and he sends him out and and when Diggory gets there, he gets the piece of apple or he gets the piece of fruit, the apple, and, and, and Jadis is there. And she says, if you will just take this apple back to your world and give it to your mother, she will live. She'll be healed. And Diggory says, but Aslan has told me not to do it. And he said, oh, Aslan is holding out on you. It's just like the serpent in Genesis. God knows that you won't die. He knows you're going to be like him. God's heart is holding out on you. And that's what Jada says to Diggory, and and, and he's tempted to do it, but he decides he's going to obey Aslan, and and he goes back to Aslan. And as he's traveling back, he says it says, He was very sad, and he wasn't even sure all the time that he had done the right thing. But whenever he remembered the shining tears in Aslan's eyes, he became sure. See, the very fact that Aslan had tears in his eyes gave him reason to trust him. Even when he didn't understand why, even when he didn't understand what was going on and things were hard, he could trust Aslan because he knew Aslan cared. It wasn't just that Aslan knew about his mom, but his heart was broken for her. And and, and in some ways, he was suffering too. See, during this pandemic, a lot of people have been suffering. And and part of the problem is, uh, we we say a lot of times we're all in this together and we are all in this together, but we're not all in this in the same way. There are people who are suffering far greater than I have. Some of you have. And there's people who have suffered greater than you. There's people who have lost jobs and lost retirements and, and, and even loved ones. And they're suffering. And that's a problem. And in addition to that, we've seen racial violence and racial injustice again in the last few weeks. And the question comes, where is God in our suffering? Can we even trust him? Does, does he even care? And the clear answer of Scripture is Yes! He cares about our suffering. He is with us in our suffering. And he, not only that, but he is, there are tears in his eyes. So you can trust him. See, some theologians talk about the impassibility of God. And that's just a really long word. That means uh, they say that God uh, is incapable of emotion, right? He's incapable of feeling. He doesn't feel joy and pleasure, grief or pain. And when I hear them say that, I wonder, have you ever actually read the Bible? Because in the Old Testament, we we find a God who so loves us that our condition affects him. In Genesis 6, when there's a story of the flood, it says this in verse 6, God, the Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Do you know what that's like? To have your heart filled with pain, and and, and yours is a human heart. What What about the divine heart? Filled with pain. Philip Yancey says, when you read the Old Testament prophets, it's like overhearing a lover's quarrel through the apartment wall. The emotion is white hot. And God says in Jeremiah thirty-one twenty, speaking of the people of Israel as his son, he says, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion on him, declares the Lord. When you get to Hosea, Hosea 11, there's this outburst of, of divine emotion. And, and God says in verse 8, my heart is torn within me. My, this is God speaking my heart is torn within me my compassion overflows does that sound like a God who's impassable? you might say well that's the new living translation listen to the King James the new King James says my heart churns within me every parent knows what that's like the more you love your kids the more their grief and their pain become your own right and one of your kids has a victory what do you feel you feel victory, you feel joy. When getting, we had one of our sons this week got an internship that we've been praying that he would get and, and Marlene texted me as soon as she found out about it and, and I immediately pulled out my phone and called him and said, we, you know, great job, I'm proud of you and everything. And then I texted Marlene and I said, uh, honey, on the way home, we're stop, I'm stopping at Costco, I'm getting steak, I'm getting shrimp, I'm, you know, and I'm gonna get his, I'm gonna ask him for two times what I'm allowed. We're surfing turf, baby, tonight. Amen. And do you know when when I heard that, in my body, I felt better. I, I mean, I, it was a good day, but then it was a great day. Why? Because I felt what he felt. I felt that there was this joy that welled up because, because what was happening was him. I was, I, was in, I was in that. And you know this is true. When your kids are suffering, when they're brokenhearted, you feel that pain. See, the more deeply you love someone, the more their suffering affects you. And the pain just means the love is real. Because if you love at all, you're vulnerable. And no one loves like God. Scripture says, 1 John 4, 16, God is love. It doesn't say he has love. It doesn't say he loves on occasion. No, he is love. That means there is no one who loves deeper and stronger and more radically and more completely than God loves you. And that means that when you suffer and when you hurt, so does he. In Acts chapter 9, Saul's on, on the road to Damascus, and he's going to persecute and kill Christians, right? And on his way, God, you know, Jesus knocks him off his horse. or what? I guess he wasn't really on a horse, but anyway, he gets knocked down. There's a big bright light. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, why do you persecute my, my, my people? He said, why do you persecute me? Because Jesus so identifies with his people that when they hurt, he hurts. When they grieve, he grieves. When they're persecuted, he is persecuted. Peter says that when believers go through fiery trials, that Jesus is not just present spiritually with them, but 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Peter says we we participate. He participates with us. We participate with him. Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that we have the fellowship. Of sharing in his sufferings. This is an extraordinary verse. Think let this in for a moment. We share, we fellowship in his suffering, which means he's, we're sharing. And he's sharing in our sufferings. And sometimes it's in that moment that you experience the presence of God greater than any other time. It reminds me of the story in Daniel chapter 3. Remember this story? Uh, there's this king named Nebuchadnezzar. He's a little bit narcissistic. Uh, he builds a, a big statue, and he says, when the music plays, you've got to bow down and worship, um, you know, and if you don't, you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And three Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say they're not going to bow. The music plays, and I don't know how you read the Bible, but I read it with a soundtrack in the background. And for me, when the music plays, it's ACDC, Back in Black, Dun, dun, you know what I'm talking about. I'm embarrassing about children. That's the song that plays because it's Nebuchadnezzar. And they refuse to bow. And Nebuchadnezzar calls them in. I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they say, King, know this. Our God is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to your idol. And you know the story. You get thrown into the fire. And usually that's bad. I mean, just in general, being thrown in a fiery furnace is a bad thing. A few minutes later, the king looks in, and he goes, how many people we throw in there? Three, O king. I don't know why they say O king all the time, but I guess in Babylon, that was the thing. Three, O king. And he says, well, now there's four people in there, and the fourth person looks like a son of the gods. You see, they had to go into the fire, but they met God there. See, that is the promise to us as believers in the New Testament. When we go through the furnace of afflictions, Jesus is quite literally with us, and he's feeling the flames too. And you know what that means? You can trust him. Hebrews 2 verse 18 that Scott read because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted. Later in chapter 4 it says we have a high priest who is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. In other words God has willingly opened himself up and he's affected by what brings joy to our hearts and what brings pain. He's not far off. And the culmination of that revelation is, is the cross where you see God taking it on himself. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, puts it more eloquently. He says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. Now, stop right there for a second. I, I agree with Stott here. This, I can say that that sentence, I could have written that sentence. Because I've studied a lot of philosophy, and I know the arguments for the existence of God, and I think they're persuasive, but there's so much suffering and evil in the world that if it wasn't for the cross, I don't know what I would be. He says, "If I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away, and in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. There is still a question. There's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. Wow. See, when you ask the question, why does God allow suffering? And you look at the cross, you may not always know what the answer is in every situation, but you know what it isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he's indifferent or detached. It can't be that he doesn't take us seriously. It can't be that he doesn't feel it. In fact, God takes our suffering so seriously, he willingly took it upon himself. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Even in our worst suffering in the middle of a pandemic. Even when there's racial injustice that turns our stomach. Even when there's hatred and brokenness and grief and sorrow. He is with us. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a pastor in Germany and he stood up to Hitler and he got thrown in a prison camp. He wrote in a letter to his friend, only the suffering God can help. Maybe there's somebody here today and, and that's where you are. You're, you're in this place of sorrow or, or or brokenness or you're fighting with whatever it is. I want you to remember this morning, remember Aslan's tears. Remember, Jesus reveals to us what God is like. And when you see Jesus in the New Testament, he comes to Jerusalem, and he says, he's weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. Or when he comes to Lazarus' grave, and he's so moved by the the destruction of sin and death that he weeps. Remember, that's not just God's heart for Jerusalem and Lazarus. That is God's heart for you. He is with you. He is for you. God's presence with you and for you is the most important thing you could experience today. There's a story in the Old Testament about a guy named Job. And you know the story. Job was a devout believer. He was a pillar in his community. And he's plunged into darkness. And it has nothing really to do with anything that he did. It's this chess mask because we're kind of... Let in behind the scenes in the first couple chapters is a chess match between God and Satan. And it's kind of disturbing, actually. And most people just read the first couple chapters of Job and then the last few chapters where God speaks and he gets double back all that he lost. But in the middle, there's all of these long speeches by Job and Job's friends. And most of the time, Job in those speeches is expressing confusion. He's expressing anger, which you and I would be doing the same thing. But in a couple places, he, he wrestles through to some, some, some revelation. And at one point, it's chapter 13, Job starts praying for God's presence. He says, he said, God, don't hide your face from me. I want to see your face. I want your presence. I want your companionship. I need to know you're with me. Earlier, Job had been asking for an explanation. Why? I got to know why. Here, he says, I, I, okay, I, I don't care about why right now, I just need you to be with me. I don't need all the answers if I know you're with me, you're walking with me, because when you're in a crisis, knowing that someone is with you gives you strength. Joe Bailey wrote a book many years ago. He and his wife lost three sons. They had seven kids. Three of them died at different times of life. And he wrote a book called The View from a Hearse. Here's what he wrote. I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true, and I wished he would go away. And he finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more. He listened. When I said something, he answered briefly. He prayed simply, and left. I hated to see him go. You see what's happening there? See, see, if you aren't suffering, if you're if you're having a nice life and everything's going your way, suffering is just an intellectual puzzle. Okay, it's academic. It's like an intellectual. It's like a math problem, right? It's like if this train leaves uh, Chicago and this one leaves Milwaukee at this time, and they're going this speed, how long will it take? That's an intellectual puzzle. That's a math problem. Suffering isn't like that. Suffering is more like a journey. It's like crossing the Alps on a trek, and if you're on a journey, you need a map. But you need more than a map. You need the strength to make the journey because you can have a map. You can have all the answers, but if you don't have the strength, you're going to die. And so what Joe Bailey was saying was when he was torn by grief, he didn't need a map. He, need, he didn't need an answer to an intellectual puzzle. He needed someone to be present, to be with him, to walk through it. And, you know, sometimes as a pastor, sometimes what I think you need is a good sermon. That's what you need. You need answers. You need someone to tell you what it all means. You need a map of what to do, where to go, why, and how. And that's good stuff, but that is not what you need the most this morning. Tim Keller tells a story about going back to the first church he pastored like 20 or 30 years later and 10 or 12 people were there to to speak and say what his ministry had meant to them all those years ago and you know if you've ever read or heard Tim Keller speak he's brilliant okay his sermons are eloquent his books are articulate and beyond just intellect, he has just an ironic spirit. He's winsome. Uh, he's peaceful. You just, you just want to be around him. And when they got up to say what had impacted them, nobody said anything about any of that. Not one word about his sermons. Not one word about how smart he was or how well-read he was. Instead, you know what they talked about? When my son got arrested, you went to the jail. When my dad was dying. He held his hand in the hospital. And they went on about just presence. And you know why? Because they didn't need a map. They didn't need, a certain, they didn't need three points in a poem and a, and, a, and a wonderful conclusion. No, they needed somebody walking beside them. And here we are in this pandemic, and it would be nice to have a map, right? And, and that's one of the very frustrating things about this whole thing is that there isn't a playbook. And it feels like there's so many inconsistencies and bizarre contradictions. I mean, we were looking up something on the CDC website the other day, and we found a contradiction uh, uh, on instructions on the same website. <laughs> it was contradicting themselves. And, 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 and then, you know, we were trying to follow the, the healthy at work for houses of worship, and then it changed in the middle of the week. And look, it's not anyone's fault, okay? It's just a, it's just a fluid situation. And the only thing that's constant and consistent is it's going to change tomorrow. Right? and what, It feels like we need an answer. It feels like we need an intellectual explanation, but you don't need primarily a map. You need God's presence. You need to know and truly believe God is with you and more than believe it intellectually, experience it. You see, the greatest gift that, that, that I could possibly give you as your pastor is not a philosophical or theological or even biblical explanation why. No, because you could leave here with a why. You could leave here with a map and not have the power to make the journey. No, the greatest gift you could receive this morning is if you actually encountered the love of the living God and you left knowing that God is with you, suffering with you, walking with you, holding you up, and you will make it through. You can have an answer but not have the strength. And you know what? Only Christianity, of all the major religions, says in response to suffering that God did not give us a sermon. He gave us himself. He came and walked through our suffering with us and for us, and he's still with us today. God is right here. He's right now present in this room. I pray you experience his presence. Holy Spirit, let us experience your presence. There have been a couple different moments in my life where I was in such a dark place, and I was screaming out to God, Why? And the more I demanded an answer, the darker it got. But at some point when I said, okay, you know what? An answer is not what I need. What I need is you. I just need you. When we come to that point, things change. I just need you. There's a story in Exodus. It's chapter 33. And Exodus 33 comes right after Exodus 32. This is very deep. Please try to keep up. In Exodus 32, what we have is the whole gold calf thing. Golden calf, you know, they made a calf. I oh, threw the golden, in. I don't know. This calf jumped out. I don't know what happened, Moses. Uh, and, you know, they're kind of doing this thing. And God says in chapter 3, all right, here's the deal. You know what, Moses, people of Israel, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you everything you ever dreamed of. I'm going to give you everything you ever wanted. All of it. You can have it. All of it. In fact, I'm going to send an angel to go ahead of you to defeat all the enemies, take you into the problem. You're not even going to have to fight. One caveat, I ain't going with you. You're on your own. Because you're stiff-necked. That that is my biblical uh, precedent for calling people stiff-necked. Because God did that. You're stiff-necked. And Moses and the people respond beautifully. They say, "Lord, Lord... we really do want to go to the, the promised land. We really do want to be in a land of flowing with milk and honey. But here's the deal. If you don't go with us, don't send us up from here. Because they knew you can have everything you ever wanted. And if you don't have God's presence, you don't have anything. And you can be out in the middle of a wilderness for 40 years, and if God is with you, you have everything you need. So I pray. That you and I would experience his presence vividly. You know, one of the one of the historical kind of bizarre puzzles uh, that historians kind of like, kind of just well puzzled over um, is is that we don't actually know where Jesus' tomb is. You know, I mean, if you, the, you know, the visitor brochure for Israel says it's in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, but there's other places that people say, you know, his tomb was here, it was here, you know, it was in the garden tomb, there's a garden tomb, uh, it was over here, and, and, and there's all this debate about where it was, and nobody knows where it was, and, and the weird thing about it really is, in every other major religion, the place of the tomb of the founder becomes a place of pilgrimage, where people pray, and it's venerated, and it's honored, And there's no record of that happening in Christianity except on the first day when the women went to the tomb and they got more than they bargained for. And then some of the disciples came in too and you never hear about the tomb after that. And nobody cared where it was. Why? Because they experienced his presence. It's, it's like, you know, you know when, it, when, uh, when a mom has a baby and, and, and it's in the onesie, the onesie doesn't make the mom cry. Why? Because the baby's there. It's about the baby. But you let that baby grow up, go away to college, and then one day she's cleaning out his closet, and there's the onesie. She starts crying. Why? Because he's not there anymore. But when the baby's there, you don't cry. Well, you might cry for other reasons, but you don't cry for longing for, to see your baby. Are you following me? So the early Christians, they experienced him as a loss So who cares where the tomb is? After his resurrection, not just after his resurrection, after his ascension, nobody cared where the tomb was. Because they experienced him a lot. Here's my prayer prayer, that you and I would experience just as vividly as the early church, just as clearly as the early church did 2,000 years ago because he is alive and with us. And I pray that you have spiritual eyes to see his face. And you get towards the end of the magician's nephew at the very end, towards the very end. Diggory and Polly are talking to Aslan, and he's about to send them back to our world. And Lewis writes, Both children were looking up into the lion's face as he spoke these words. And all at once, and they never knew exactly how it happened, the face seemed to be a sea of tossing gold in which they were floating. And such a sweetness and power rolled about them and over them and entered them that they felt that they had never really been wise or happy or good or even alive and awake before. And the memory of that moment stayed with them always so that as long as they both lived, if ever they were sad or afraid or angry, the thought... Of all that golden goodness and the feeling that it was still there quite close, just around some corner or just behind some door would come back and make them sure, deep down inside, that all was well. See, My prayer for you this morning is that you see Jesus in all of his goodness. That you see his heart for you. His tears. And that The memory of that would stay with you always. A little spoiler alert here. Aslan does give an apple to Diggory to take back to his mom because he's good. And Diggory takes it back and gives his mom the apple because we live in a sinful world. It takes a little while before she's healed and whole and strong again. And it says, for the rest of that day... Whenever Diggory looked at the things about him and saw how ordinary and unmagical they were, he hardly dared to hope. But when he remembered the face of Aslan, he did hope. We're called, we're called to remember the face of Jesus. Remember the tears of Jesus. Remember his suffering on the cross for you. And remember this. He is with you right now. And let the memory of that, let God's heart for you give you hope. Because if God is for us, who's going to be against us?